0: The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, by Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asaph, Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham. Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Eliud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. You may be seated.
1: Jess, when you thought we'd left Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and all those weird scriptures behind, it was Pastor Ben's turn to preach again. Well, good morning, and this is the fourth and final Sunday of Advent, the Sunday of hope, as Adam and Dorothy were reading for us. I want to start with a brief story. The sermon is called An Old Family Recipe, and I don't actually know how many family recipes we really have, but there's the one that I thought of, and I don't actually know the origin, so I kind of made one up, that once upon a time, over a century ago, in the green foothills of the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee, a Henderson ancestor made breakfast for her clan. Working as the sun rose, great-great-great-grandma rolled biscuits, cut bacon, and taking the bacon grease, the flour, the milk, and the seasonings, made gravy. Now, this gravy, like other bacon gravies. It's not a totally new thing, but this specific gravy and this specific recipe is a special thing for our family, known to us down through the generations. An old family recipe. Is that how it started? I have no idea. Did you make it up? Don't say if you did, because that ruins it. Some distant ancestor. This last October, I had some people over for breakfast, because Henderson's have been about breakfast for a long time, and my brother Caleb and I uh, who isn't in the room, so I'll feel free to blame him fully for this. We tried to carry on that proud tradition of gravy making, uh, but it did not go well. And if you were at my house that morning, you may remember, the fire trucks didn't actually come, but we probably should have called them to speak in terms of breaking the covenant in exile, and Jerusalem burning down feels appropriate to the magnitude of our culinary failure that morning. We had all the ingredients. We had all the proper tools. Mom had told us how to make it. And yet Caleb and I, you know, and I'm like, he's going to be a doctor. Like, he's not, you know, dumb. Caleb and I <laughs> managed to spawn the devil in that gravy pan that morning. A black sticky goop that fused to the metal, destroyed the spatula I was using, filled the kitchen with smoke. I took the cursed gravy outside just to get it away from me. And later that day, I threw the pan in the garbage rather than trying to even begin to fix it. And I tell you that story because I think that Caleb and I's disaster is a sharp picture of what it means for something to be hopeless. Once you've burned food, there's really no way to recover back to what it was before that happened. There are many other adjustments that a good cook and cooks wiser and better than I can do to fix a recipe. If the flavor's off, if there's too much salt, if the sauce is too runny, you know, there's a number of things you can do. But once you've burned the gravy, as we learned, there is no coming back. And to talk about the hope that we have in Jesus, we must begin by acknowledging that each of our lives has burned bits like that. Maybe. Some of us, maybe not, but most of us, at least a few places. There are relationships, circumstances we're facing now, memories of things that have happened to us that are real, truly burned spots on our souls and on our spirits, scorched by sin and death beyond any hope of our recovery. And I think we have to start there because if we don't, we don't understand or we won't understand the real hope that is offered by the Lord. The hope that Adam and Dorothy were reading about earlier and that we sang these songs about, it's not just some kind of casual, sort of more serious, wishful thinking. What is God's word to us in the midst of our failure, in the midst of being left out or ignored, in the midst of being burned? It's to hope in the Lord. And like I said, usually when we use that word hope, we mean a slightly more serious form of wishful thinking. I hope that it snows on Christmas. Uh, I hope that, you know, the next time Caleb and I make the gravy, we don't burn it. I hope that by the time I get to the potluck table, there's still deviled eggs. That's how we normally use that word hope. And it's not bad Carry on using it that way. But know that that's not what the biblical authors mean when they use that word hope. The book of Hebrews tells us that hope, our hope in Christ, is an anchor for the soul. It is something that is solid and movable. Something that holds you in place in the midst of the storms of life. Hope is waiting for God to act in the ways that he's promised to. Our hope is not just in the odds or in maybe hopefully it'll work out okay. Our hope is in the personal integrity and faithfulness of God. Hope looks beyond our own efforts not on the mess we've made of our own cooking. It fixes our eyes on Jesus, the great potluck that the Lord is preparing for his people. And our text of hope this morning, as Clayton so wonderfully uh, read for us, is this first chapter of Matthew's Gospel, verses one through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, originally, my Christmas gift to you was that we weren't going to read the whole thing, but then Clayton talked me into it, and that's fine. As I go through and pronounce some of these names, I'm going to do it badly. I don't know, there he's up there, so, you know, he'll just have to be at peace with that. But this is a genealogy, it's the family line of Jesus, a list of names, 50-ish, most of whom you have no idea who these people are. And don't feel bad, I don't know who a lot of these people are, specifically. Verses, verses 2 through 6 list the patriarchs, starting with Abraham, the founding figure the founding figures of Israel, down to our friends Boaz and Ruth. Verses 6 through 11 list the kings, beginning with David and ending with poor, wicked king Jeconiah, and I'll come back to him in a moment. And then verses 12 through 16 list the ancestors who survived the gigantic national catastrophe that was the exile and deportation to Babylon all the way down to kind Joseph, the husband of Jesus' mother, Mary. Now a question it's good to ask is why did Matthew start the book like this? He does want us to like keep reading, right? It's sort of like when you, you sometimes you see a movie and they start with the credits. A lot of times the credits are in the back But sometimes you have one of these films that they decide you really have to know who made it and so the credits begin at the beginning and I always hate that and you reach for the fast forward. Let's get through this part because nothing's really happening. But let's wait a moment here. Let's not fast forward through Matthew chapter 1 because I think that Matthew is using this family list to tell us something about hope, and about how God works the shape of the gospel. And if I may, this is, this is for free, but if I may just offer a short comment on biblical genealogies in general, because those of you who have tried to read the Bible or, or do read the Bible, you may have noticed that there are lots of lists of names, and sometimes they come up when you don't really expect them to. In the middle of a story, Exodus decides to hit the brakes just so, just so you know who Moses and Aaron's descendants and ancestors are. You're like, okay and, like, let's get back to the, you know, plagues, you know, so it's just these, they're all over the place, these long lists of names, both in the Old and the New Testament, and again, we wonder why, what were they thinking? That doesn't seem very readable to us. But the genealogies of scripture ground God's story in actual people's lives. We don't know who many of these people are, but we trust that they existed, they had families and hopes and dreams, they participated in the things of God in the ways that they could, The genealogies tell us that our faith is a matter of blood and birth, dirt and real history. These things happened, these people lived, they walked on this same planet. The genealogies also remind us that God's work continues in the midst of chaos and strife. They're compasses in the middle of the violence and confusion and failure that God's people experience. Whenever you see one, it's pointing to the true north, that despite whatever's happening in the story, Somebody's failing, some city blew up, you know, these different things are happening. But there's a genealogy to remind us that God's promises are carrying on, that His work continues in the midst of all of that. Even if the Israelites burn all of their food, which they did, that's what the exile was a gigantic gravy disaster. Even if the Israelites burn all their food and make a mess of everything, God can still put on a feast. And so Matthew starts with a genealogy to establish that Jesus is the descendant of Abraham and King David. Jesus is the descendant of Abraham and therefore an heir to the covenant promises that God made to Abraham. He is qualified to be faithful on behalf of the entire family of Israel and for that faith to be credited to Jesus as righteousness. And Jesus is also a descendant of David, which means he's a member of the royal family. He is qualified and has a right to rule. Everything that's happened in the Old Testament, the promises, the exodus, the wanderings, the plagues and the wars, all of it has been pointing to Jesus. He is the conclusion of this long, weird, sad story. A hopeful conclusion. And Matthew begins this way to give his readers hope. We also are waiting on Yahweh's promises. We also can't always understand how we fit into what he's doing, just like all these people on the list. Matthew tells us that Jesus the Messiah finally arrived. It took, uh, he walked out of the room so I can't ask him, but I think it's about 2,000 years between Abraham to Jesus. It certainly feels like 2,000 years when we sit and read it together, but Jesus the Messiah finally came after hundreds of years of waiting and preparation. And this is in stark contrast to Herod, and some of you know about King Herod. If you want to know more about him, you can keep reading in Matthew because he shows up immediately in chapter 2. He is the ruler of Judea, appointed by the Roman Empire, and generally the Christmas pageant villain. Herod shows up and is not pleased that people are claiming that Israel's real king has been born. Herod couldn't actually prove his bloodline. He couldn't prove that he was descended from David. And Herod actually destroyed many of the genealogical records in his day so that nobody could undermine his claim to the throne. And so Matthew's genealogy, in some ways, is really a political statement that he found some lists and worked it out. Herod is not the real king of Israel. Jesus is. The true king has come, and he has brought hope. Hope for our failure. Hope for those left out. Hope for those whose lives are badly burnt. And I chose this passage as well because genealogies are kind of like recipes, and I've been really into cooking lately, if you can't tell, apron, so on and so forth. Matthew 1 is God's old family recipe for how to produce a Messiah. And in Matthew 1, there are three truths about God's working that I would like to set before you today. The first is that God's recipe involves a lot of burnt and imperfect ingredients. The second is that God uses ingredients that are normally left out. And thirdly, the final ingredient is the recipe, or excuse me, in the recipe, is resurrection. So first, the recipe for the Messiah calls for a lot of burnt ingredients. This may be against our expectations, right? You would think if Matthew's trying to like portray Jesus as this impressive leader, he would talk about how all these impressive people he's related to, and there are some impressive people on the list, Solomon and so on and so forth. But we also see that the recipe for the Messiah involves a lot of failure, pain, wandering, and hope alongside bad situations. If you skim over the set of names in verses six through 11 again, those of the kings, again, you don't recognize many of these. Some of them you do, but many of them you don't because a lot of them were evil morons. They didn't do a good job. If you go read about them in the book of Kings and Chronicles, it says, basically, They were morons and then they died and then the next one came on board. They broke faith, they failed. And yet their names are still here despite that failure. And the thing about biblical hope is that it does not deny reality. I think sometimes people can think that Christians ignore what's really going on in the world or in their lives and just say, well, you know, it'll all work out in the end. That's not true, that's not what Biblical hope really is. Hope does not ignore reality. Matthew's list of how the Messiah came to be doesn't ignore the reality of human failure. Hope is a confident trust that God will do what he said he would do even if we royally mess things up. Hope also doesn't have us sit on our hands and wait for God to solve all of our problems. Hope is one of the four virtues of Advent, and if you've been here over the last month, we've been talking about a different one every day, or every Sunday, love, peace, joy, and hope. Hope is traditionally the first Sunday. We kind of juggle it around just for different reasons, but generally we we talk about hope on the first Sunday of Advent because it is actually foundational to the other three. Hope is what makes our Christian love and peace and joy possible. We can love our enemies and forgive those who hurt us because our hope is in Jesus. We can make peace because we hope in Christ's victory. We can rejoice in all circumstances and draw others into that joy because we know that the end of the story is a good one. Not because everything's going great in my life right now, but because we trust that God will do what he said. Matthew's list is a reminder that God is working even when we fail. Even thinking back to that breakfast, even though Caleb annihilated the gravy, we still enjoyed the meal with the other things that we made. There's great hope for us, even in the midst of our failure. And the second aspect of God's family recipe is that he uses ingredients that are normally left out. Matthew names five women in the Messiah's family line. Tamar in verse three, Rahab and Ruth in verse five, Bathsheba referred to as Uriah's wife in verse six, and Mary in verse 16. This is unprecedented in the Bible and in ancient genealogy in general. Women did not get credit for the bloodline, even though they kind of do most of the work in terms of bringing children into the world and then rearing them. But Matthew makes a different decision includes these women in Jesus' story. All of them, in different ways, had to act boldly in hope in God's promises to bless the world through his bloodline. Tamar exposed herself to potential execution in order to carry on the family. Rahab betrayed her own people in order to hide Joshua and the other Israelite spies. Ruth used what little agency society afforded her to game Israelite inheritance law to make sure that she and her mother-in-law were taken care of. And not only were they women, they were certainly not the kind of people that we would naturally want up front at church. Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth were Gentiles, foreigners, strangers, outsiders. Bathsheba was married to a Gentile, at least until David had him killed. Tamar pretended to be a prostitute. Rahab actually was a prostitute and Mary faced many vicious rumors about her pregnancy out of wedlock. There were plenty of other women that Matthew could have included on this list. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel. He didn't. He chose these righteous five and I think the point that he's trying to make is that in God's kingdom those normally considered to be on the outside are included in the recipe. They have a part to play in what God is doing These mighty kings of Judah who lived in palaces and built these things and waged wars, yada, 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 are basically overlooked. Again, we don't know who many of those guys were. We don't remember them. But it is these faithful women, traditionally powerless and excluded, who are especially named and commended for their hopeful action. I think for us, we should not discount anyone from being a part of what God is doing. We want to. I think it's natural humans put other humans in boxes. That's just part of what we do, but that doesn't mean it's good. And I think that Matthew is saying that the hope that Jesus brings extends especially to those that we would say are on the outside. No ingredient is too risky or weird for God's cooking. There is great hope for those normally excluded and left out. So we see that God's recipe includes a lot of burnt ingredients, A lot of ingredients that are normally left out. And thirdly and lastly, the final ingredient in God's family line, or God's family recipe, his resurrection. And I want to focus again on wicked king Jeconiah in verses 11 and 12. Again, not a guy we've heard a lot about. I didn't know a lot about him until I was preparing for this morning. Jeconiah was the final king of Judah before the Babylonians came and destroyed everything. He was evil. He was the worst of the burned gravy. And the prophet Jeremiah actually calls him a pot that nobody wants, a dish that needs to be thrown away like my ill-fated gravy pan. Jeremiah 22 says, Thus says the Lord, Write this man Jeconiah down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. King Jeconiah was cursed. He bore the sin of Judas' kings so that no son of his would ever sit on Israel's throne again. It's over. David's line has been removed from the throne. There's no hope. I think we all face Jeconiah-type situations and relationships that seem burned beyond repair. Or we're facing things that are threatening to go that way. Right? If we make a mistake, if we do something wrong, if I say the wrong thing, if I don't do the right thing, then this is going to explode and we aren't going to be able to put it back together again. And the truth is, is that they might. Again, biblical hope doesn't deny reality. Sometimes things really do go badly. And there's a tension there at the heart of biblical hope that I cannot and will not try to resolve. We have hope in God, but we know that things don't always go our way. Hope doesn't deny any of those things. But our hope in Jesus is that nothing is beyond God's ability to repair. He may not restore things the way that you want, and certainly not when you want it done. God generally seems to take longer than we ever want him to. The exile did end. They came back, but Jeconiah didn't. He stayed in Babylon for the rest of his life. And in fact, they found little receipts basically. I mean, they're made of clay and everything, but uh, ancient receipts that dictate the food allowance for King Jeconiah in the Babylonian king's court. That's where he stayed, chained to a table, kind of a little pet king for the Babylonians to, I don't know, have do tricks or something. He died. His son Shealtiel died without seeing any Jews return to Israel. Death of course, is the ultimate exile, the final ruined gravy. There is no coming back. At least there wasn't until God's great cosmic timer finally went off and the Messiah came into the world. We see that that right after cursing the royal family in Jeremiah 22, Jeremiah begins to prophesy that Yahweh will raise up a righteous branch from David's family tree to rule You think, well, how is that possible, Jeremiah? You just cursed the bloodline and said that no one will rule again. And we find the answer in Jesus. And it's easy to miss that this genealogy is Joseph's, not Mary's. Joseph, while being a faithful husband and father, was not actually Jesus' dad. And Jesus was, therefore, not related to King Jeconiah by direct blood descent. He was part of the family because Joseph adopted him as his own And I think right there, at the very beginning of this gospel, Matthew has told us the shape of the things that are to come. Jeconiah's curse ended in Jesus. Jesus became the hopelessly burned and unwanted pot. He took Jeconiah's ending, the curse of God, on the cross. He, in fact, took all of our endings onto himself, bearing the weight of our sins so that we, his people, could inherit the blessing of Abraham and the status of David. God's Son was adopted into a cursed bloodline so that by His blood, we could be adopted as daughters and sons of God. And one of the subtle things that Scripture does is that while both the Old and the New Testaments feature long lists of names, the nature of what those lists are changes before and after Jesus. Before Jesus, the genealogies record the bloodline of God's biological family, and this is what we see in Matthew 1. But after Jesus, as these lists of names begin to appear in the letters and things produced by the apostles, it's not about blood relation anymore. It's become about people who belong to God's family through their union with Jesus in the early churches. So instead of Jeconiah begat Shealtiel, we get Paul told Timothy the gospel, Paul told Lydia the gospel. God's family is no longer reckoned by blood descent. It is reckoned by adoption in the faith of Jesus. I think there's great hope for us in that. That our hope is in the name of Jesus, his death and rising again. And because of that, we can love, we can seek peace, we can rejoice, we can hope even after we failed miserably. Parts of our lives get burned beyond our ability to repair. That's a sad reality, and we don't need to ignore it, but we are not thrown away because of that. You know, I don't know what the rest of you do, but as I use skillets and pans, at some point they get so ruined that I go, it's probably time to buy a new one. God does not treat us that way. We are not thrown away. Jesus was, willingly, and then God brought him back to life and made him king because of that. And we are not adopted by God because of anything special about us. God's feast, his great potluck, doesn't depend on us showing up with perfectly cooked dishes. He doesn't want what we can bring. He doesn't need what we can bring. He just wants us to come. The final ingredient in God's family recipe is resurrection. No matter how long we wait, and some of us have been waiting for things for a long time, no matter how burned we get, God's last word to us is rise again and enjoy what I've prepared for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this good day, and we do thank you for the hope that is ours in Jesus. Lord, we ask for all of us in the different situations we face, that there's things we're waiting on, for, waiting for you to, to act in, to move. Lord, that there's just painful and burnt parts of our lives that we don't know what to do, and it's beyond our ability to fix. Father, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would be at work in our hearts right now to grow hope in us. Lord, that it's not just wishful thinking, it's not blind optimism, but it is an anchor for our souls, a trust that you will do all that you have promised us that you will do.
0: In Jesus' name, amen.